Well, I don't know if you guys read the New York Times much, but two weeks ago there was an article in the New York Times, and it was called The Church of Techno-Optimism. Now, if, just so you know, the New York Times is not a Christian newspaper, okay? Uh, but they, they write this article, and it's called The Church of Techno-Optimism. You don't have to Google it right now, but you might want to write that down. It's an interesting article. And the article, it's not about the Baptist church, it's not about the Methodist church, it's not about the Episcopalian church. It's an interesting article about what's going on in Silicon Valley. If you don't know what's going on in Silicon Valley, those, that's, where they, that's where Fang ha- hangs out. Fang, F-A-N-G, that's Facebook, Apple, Netflix, and Google, okay? Uh, that, the, the, that's kind of the big four and others. And, and the, the whole article is about how the tech giants uh, are no, don't care about the 2020 election. Well, you think, well, what's so important about that? You know, because historically, uh, the tech giants have supported the Democrats. And the whole question is, well, in 2020, what are they going to do? And, and their answer is, we don't care anymore. And this is really interesting. They don't care because they don't think politics is the future. They think the future is technology. They're excited about um, artificial intelligence, AI, augmented uh, reality, uh, virtual reality, driverless cars. They're excited about all of these different things. Why am I telling you this? Uh, because the, the article is called The Church of Techno-Optimism because every person has a view and a belief about the future. And today we're going to look at Jesus' belief about the future found in Matthew chapter 24. But what I want you to understand is that what the people in Silicon Valley believe is they don't believe the Messiah is Jesus Christ. They believe the Messiah is a new technology. I mean, they don't use that exact phrase, but they believe that there's going to be technology that's going to happen in the next, whatever it is, decade or two, that's going to make our life so much different and so much better and so much more convenient and so much more comfortable, but that's, that's where they're putting all of their energy toward. And I want to bring that up because what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at what Christians have called eschatology. Now, don't be afraid of that word, okay? If you can order a vente caramel macchiato, Okay, that's a, big, that's a big phrase. Then you can understand a word like eschatology. Eschatology just means the study of the end times, the study of the last days, the study of the last things. That's what eschatology means. And, and everybody has an eschatology. So like about a week or two ago, a bunch of teenage girls gathered together. It was on CNN. And a bunch of teenage girls said, we're not having babies until we fix climate change. That, I don't know if they're going to stick to that the rest of their life, but that's what they said. And what is that? That's a view of the future that's making you make decisions right now. In the 60s, there was a bunch of people that came out, particularly university professors, and they said, the population growth is way too big. We shouldn't have any more children because, you know, we're all going to starve and we're not going to be able to feed everybody. But guess what happened? We figured out how to feed everybody. And now there's more obese people than starving people in the world. That's interesting. Right? Every, every political cycle, every four years, what happens is somebody thinks that one of the candidates is the Messiah and the other candidate's the Antichrist, right? Because <laughs> whenever you, whenever you, this is the principle of life, whenever you idolize one thing, you must demonize the opposite. Uh, there was an article in CNN in August uh, that the super wealthy elite people, uh, they are building luxury doomsday bunkers. You can Google this. They're building luxury doomsday bunkers in case of nuclear war. In case of some kind of apocalypse, so, so why am I telling you all this? Because, again, I want you to see, because sometimes people think Christians have this view of the future, and then there's all these other rational people. And it's like, no, no, that everybody has a view. I mean, you've got Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos trying to send us to Mars, and they're serious about it, and they're spending billions and billions of dollars of their own money to try to make it happen. And so in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus tells his disciples about the future. Now, he would do this all the time, right? That's one of the things that means to be God. Is he would tell people about the future, but 
he would be very realistic. He'd be very honest. By the way, this is a good thing to do. When you tell people about the future, you need to be very real with them. And what he would do is he would gather his disciples around, and I won't make you read the whole chapter, but in Matthew 24, he says, he says, guys, it's going to get a lot worse. And that's a good thing to tell people. It's a good thing to tell people, hey, you know what? I hope you get married, and I hope you have kids, and I hope you get a good job, and I hope some good things happen in your life. But here's what you need to understand. Life is going to be very tragic and very difficult and very hard. And Jesus says, uh, yeah, there's going to be wars, and there's going to be famine, and there's going to be disease, and there's going to be persecution, and there's going to be false teaching. And then look at verse 8. This is what he calls it. This is interesting. In verse 8, and this is very, very helpful, this phrase. He says, all these, that would be all the things I just told you, all the terrible things, the tragedies, the traumas, the trials, the tribulations, okay? He says, all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains, Man, is that a helpful phrase, birth pains. What does that mean? That means there is a lot of pain, but on the other side of the pain is new life. And, and why this is so helpful is because, you know, I've been in situations before where people get terrible news about their lives. I've met with a woman before that had a tumor growing on the side of her neck, that they d did all the chemotherapy and it wasn't going away and she was going to die and she was most likely going to die by suffocation. And I was meeting, she's a Christian lady, and I was meeting with her as she was being transferred over to hospice. It's like, well, what do you tell somebody like that? It's like, that's really intense. You're most likely going to die by suffocation and you have several weeks left to live. It's like, it's, and, and the way that you're going to die is most likely going to be very painful. It's like, well, what do you tell people? It's like, one of the hopes of scripture is that on the other side, there's gonna be a lot of pain and there's gonna be a lot of hardship, but it's birth pains, that means there's new life on the other end. Think about it this way. If you go to the hospital and you hear a woman screaming, is it good news or bad news? Well, it depends on what floor you're on. <laughs> If you're on the oncology unit and a woman's screaming, that's very bad news. If you're on the mother-baby new delivery mom new unit and, and, and a woman's screaming, it's like, well, praise the Lord, there's life on the other end of that. Right? And so, so for, for me, um, you know, I've got a seven, I talk about my kids a lot, I've got a seven-year-old, five-year-old, three-year-old. So we've, we've, had, we've had three kids, so that means we've had three pregnancies, three labor and deliveries, right? And my wife decided to, to do all three of them natural childbirth. In fact, I made her do that. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> she did do it, but I didn't make her do it. We just, we, together, we decided, let's take 300 years, of medical, 300 years of medical history, throw it out the window. So that's what we did. Um, just kidding. Uh, but we did do a natural childbirth. And, um, and it's interesting because, you know, you do these classes and everything. But I remember the first time, we, you know, she was in labor with Addie. She looks at me and she says, they said that if you take the classes and you take this serious and you do natural childbirth, it won't hurt. They're liars. <laughs> But once you have the baby, it's like, well, why does any mom who ever goes through the pain of childbirth ever have another kid? It's a fair question to ask. You know, it's so, so, I mean, not, I can't, you know, guys aren't allowed to speak about this, but it's so painful is what we're told. And so it's like, well, why do they do that? It's like, well, because on the other end of it, there's life and they almost forget. It's not that they fully forget how painful it was, but the life that's on the other end seems to be worth all of the pain that they went through. And so, so it's, very, it's a very powerful illustration that he gives us. He says, it's like the birth pains. And then he says, I want you to see this in verse 30. He says this, then... After all of the birth pains, he says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. That was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's out of the book of Daniel. It's, it's, a, it's a title of royalty and kingship. It says, and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. So every person from every tribe and every place will see him. It says, and they will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So it says that there will, be, there will be two responses at the return of Christ. And by the way, that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the time. And I don't think I've ever explicitly taught on the return of Christ. But this is what this passage is about. It, it says that 
When Jesus Christ returns, nobody will be neutral, right? There's going to be two. It'll either be the greatest day of your life or it'll be the worst day of your life. And this is kind of intense, but I don't, this is just what the Bible says. The Bible says in Revelation, the book of Revelation, that when Christ returns, people who are not ready for it will cry out for the rocks to fall off of the mountains and to crush them. I mean, I can't think of anything more intense than that. And so it's a very, very serious idea. And so Jesus, the, the, the reason we're talking about this is because Jesus talked about his return all the time. Like it's not, it's not a secondary or it's not a tertiary doctrine. So the, the return of Christ is mentioned 318 times in your New Testament. That's once every 13 verses. That's 8%, basically. 8% of your New Testament is about the return of Christ. It was such a big deal that you've got to understand that when moms and dads, we don't do this anymore, because myself included, we're just not very serious Christians about a lot of things. And we don't really take things very seriously. And we're not very focused like the New Testament church was. But the, the moms and dads would tuck their kids to bed in at night. And when they would tuck their kids to bed at night, they'd say, we don't know if Christ is going to return before you wake up. We're going to go to bed for eight or nine hours, and I don't know what's going to happen. And, but Christ has said he could return in a moment. So let's pray, because we would want, we'd want to be ready if he came in the middle of the night. I just want you to know that's how, that's how the church was. That's how the church has been. The book of Acts, Acts chapter one, what's the first thing that happens in the book of Acts? Jesus ascends to heaven, they turn around, there's two angels there, the angels say, hey, he's gonna return. And then people go, well, why are they so passionate in the book of Acts? Why are they so prayerful? Why are they so evangelistic? Why are they so servant-hearted? Why are they so willing to suffer? I think they believe that Jesus Christ was going to return. What's the very last words in your New Testament? You don't need to turn there now, but the last two verses of the Bible, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. That's the last words of Jesus in the whole Bible. I'm coming soon. And then John, the Apostle John, he's writing the New Testament. It's like, he, in my mind, I just picture him like overflowing in response. He goes, come Lord Jesus. And then that's the end of the book of Revelation. He says, the grace of God be with you all. And so this, this is not a secondary doctrine. So we're not going to talk about the things Christians disagree about. Like, go, not goofy things. I don't mean goofy. Just because they're important, but they're secondary. We're not going to talk about the millennium. We're not going to talk about the tribulation. We're, not gonna, we're going to talk about what Christians have always believed, which is that Jesus Christ will return suddenly, visibly, bodily, triumphantly from the sky. Christians have always, they've not debated about it. Every great confession of the church ends with it. And here's the humbling thing. How you feel about the return of Christ tells you your current spiritual condition. It's like, it's like put the thermometer in your mouth. That's how it does it. It's like, well, how do you feel about it? Well, I don't care about it. It's like, not a good answer. <laughs> well, I don't want him to return until I get married. Well, not a great answer either. <laughs> right? We have to ever wait. Well, I'm kind of I'm scared about his return. Well, that tells you something about yourself. I don't know all that that tells yourself. And so th there's this kind of idea that, okay, well, the, whether Christ, how I feel about Christ's return tells me a lot about my own spiritual condition. And so Jesus goes on and he begins to, if you look in verse 42, he says this, he says, therefore, stay awake. Now, there are two extremes I've found when it comes to the return of Christ. There are people that are obsessed with it, and there are people that are oblivious to it, right? The people that are obsessed with it, they're like taking a crayon, and on the back of a cereal box, you know, they're, they're drawing out charts, you know, of, of when he's going to return, and, you know, what the global stock markets are doing, and, you know, all, all of these kind of things, and, and always trying to calculate it. I'm, you know, I'm kind of being goofy here, but, but there are people that are, they've read all the Left Behind books, Right? They saw the, the movie with Kirk Cameron and the movie with Nicolas Cage. Okay, they both came out. Um, they've got charts, they've got graphs, but you know, honestly, I'm not worried about that person that I know doesn't go to our church. That's okay if they do, but I'm saying that, that I don't know that person. I think most of us tend to be more oblivious to it. We're not staying awake. 
We're not thinking about it. We're thinking about our future a lot, but we're not thinking about that. We're thinking about our next vacation. We're thinking about our retirement. We're thinking about our graduation. We're thinking about the next school we want to get into. We're thinking about our career, and we're thinking nothing about the return of Christ. And that, I mean, that's just, that's an unintelligible concept in the New Testament, to, to be not thinking about the return of Christ at all. So, so here's what he says. Verse 42, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Verse 44, therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. The whole idea is that because Christ, the, the biblical teaching is because Christ has not told us when he is going to return, it should actually make us more expectant of it. It's kind of like this week I was just gone for one night, but I told my kids I'm not going to tell you when I'm coming back. I'm going to come back, but I'm not going to tell you. Because if I just tell you I'm coming back tomorrow, then you won't look, you'll look tomorrow. But if I tell you that you, know, you don't know when I'm going to come back, then the point would be that you would look every day. Right? Spurgeon said he doesn't tell us when he's coming back, so we would always stand on tiptoe wondering, could it be today? Now, now, look, I, I know that there's a lot of things we can talk about this. There's, there's things that the Bible says need to happen before Christ can return, but, but there's no question that the Apostle Paul thought Jesus could come back in his lifetime. There's no question. There's what are called the we statements of Paul. It's where Paul would say, we who are alive when the Lord returns. He would say things like that. Which means Paul lived with some type of expectancy that Christ could return. Now, I don't know how you feel. Whenever I talk about the return of Christ, even as I was preparing this message, I feel a little strange talking about the return of Christ sometimes. Like, yeah, I believe that Jesus is going to return from the sky, riding a white horse with a tattoo on his leg that says, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. I mean, but, but you think about it, it's like, if you say, but it's like, well, that's, it just tells you that we believe in a supernatural spiritual faith, which feels, which feels strange when we live in a closed system like America, right? America believes in a closed system, like all that you see is all that there is. And nobody times nothing equals everything that you see. And that's the story. And all that there is is all that you see. And, and we believe, no, no, there's actually, the, the world is very supernatural. Like apologetics, apologists, guys who defend, girls who defend the Bible for a living, they say, if you believe in the creation of the world out of nothing, that is actually the greatest miracle that could ever happen, and then therefore anything else is possible. Like if you believe God created everything, including you, <laughs> including me, including everything, if you believe he created all this out of nothing, then the resurrection is not that big of a deal. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. The resurrection is amazing. I just mean that's easy compared to creating everything out of nothing. If you believe God created everything out of nothing, then you can believe that he's going to return. Like everything we believe is supernatural. We believe that the God who spoke everything into existence became a baby who had to learn to speak again. We believe a virgin got pregnant. I mean, we believe that a Jewish man at 33 years old died on a hill in the Middle East and it matters for our eternity. So all the return of Christ does is it confronts you with, do I really believe the Bible? Right? We talk about it all the time. Do I really believe the Bible? Am I willing to change my mind? Am I willing to grow? Am I willing to, to learn? And so here's what he says. I, 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 love, I love what C.S. Lewis says. Let me read you this quote. C.S. Lewis says this about the second coming. How should we think about it? Because like tangibly, how, how do we plan for the future? Right? Because the Apostle Paul thought Christ could return, and he took long missionary journeys. He thought Christ could return, and he wrote letters. And back in that day, it's like, here, take this letter. We'll get to them in a month. It's like, well, what if Christ returned beforehand? Well, he might, but we, we still need to plan and move and pray. So this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, we should be like an 80-year-old man 
who needs on the one hand not to be always thinking about his approaching death, but he should always be taking it into an account. It would be criminally foolish not to have made his will and so on. And I love this phrase. Now what death is to each person, the second coming is to the whole human race. All that's saying is that what death is to, what the, what the second coming will be to everybody, your death will be to you. And, you know, it's like, is it depressing to talk about death? Yes, but it's also the truth, right? Facts are our friends. And, and it would be foolish to never talk about something that's definitely going to happen to everyone. And so there, here's what he says. We must therefore train ourselves to ask more and more often how the things we are saying and doing or are failing to do at each moment will look in the, when the irresistible light of God streams in upon it. That irresistible light that is so different from the light of this world that will reveal all things as they truly are. There are three reasons primarily to think about the return of Christ, just to bring it really down for us. There's three reasons, and if you hear maybe one thing I say today, this is the three reasons. Number one, the Bible teaches that the return of Christ give, uh, helps us for our life to be pure, for our life to be pure. Like there's, again, it's interesting, when you read church history and you read these men and women who were so godly, they would say things like, well, I wouldn't want to be looking at something inappropriate when the Lord returned. I wouldn't want to be bitter and angry and resentful and unforgiving when the Lord returned. Like, I, I want to live my life in such a way, I want to live my life today so that if Christ comes back tonight, I'm not ashamed. And, I, and one of the diagnostic questions of my heart is if Christ came back today, would I be ready? So it keeps your life pure. Nothing keeps your life pure like Christ could return. It's like when you're a little kid, it's like dad could walk in my room at any moment. Well, that's a good thing for me to know. And I'll probably live a little bit different because of that. And I may not always like that, but it's probably the best thing for me. That's kind of the idea. The second thing is it makes your mission clear, right? Now, this is really interesting. One of the most interesting things I found out this week is that churches that talk about the return of Christ a lot talk a lot about global missions. And you go, well, what's the connection? It's like, well, the Bible says that Christ cannot return, will not return, until all tribes, tongues, people, and nations have heard of him. And so if you ever want to meet some, and I mean this in the best sense of the word, some radical missionaries, some crazy missionaries, who've decided, like I know a guy who moves his family to India and learns Hindi and he's got his little babies there and is fully invested and gave up on the American dream and gave up on the Christian American dream and lives there, it's like, well, what is he doing? It's like, man, he, he has a big view of Jesus. He believes the Bible. And he believes that somehow what he's doing is actually pleasing Christ and is going to hasten his return. As the scripture. And then the third thing is, uh, it keeps our hope alive. Like, there's a lot of terrible things. People get bad news all the time, right? You get bad news financially. You get bad news at work. You get bad news about your kids. You get bad news from the doctors. Like, there's just a lot of, you get bad news when you read the newspaper, it's like, and what's your ultimate hope, right? I find too often I'm giving people hope in this world. I'm like, well, have you tried this doctor? Have you tried this medication? Not that we don't give that kind of advice, it's good. But well, what about the hope of just, all right, you know what, that may not get fixed in this life. Praise God that he's gonna one day return and change all things. That's, that's the great hope. And so Jesus, he tells us to stay awake. He tells us to be alert. And he gives us an example, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. 
Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. He basically says the return of Christ is like a dad coming home hoping to see his kids do what he said they were going to do. I don't know if you've got young kids. Some of you have young kids or have had young kids. One of the great joys is to sneak up on your kids when they're behaving. <laughs> like every once in a while, it'll be real, we've got an attic that we turn into a bonus room, and the kids go up there and play, and every once in a while, it's too quiet. So are they lighting something on fire? What are they, what are they doing? And you go up there, and every once in a while, now sometimes you're acting crazy, and you do, you know, but every once in a while, I go up there, and it's like they're sitting nicely playing with each other. And I just leave, you know, very quietly. And I just like, okay. And it, and it really is amazing. It's the same thing as what happens if, if you're a parent and someone ever says, hey, your kid was over and they were so polite and they were, it's like, my kid? You know, that's kind of, but, but it, you have this great joy of your kids obeying when you're not around. And that's what he's, what he's getting to. And then he says in verse 48, but there's a wicked servant. He says to himself, my master's delayed. Christ isn't coming back. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he, he says there's the person who's ready and the person who's not ready, and then he tells this parable. And the parable that we're looking at today is the parable of the ten virgins. It's a very interesting parable. Just look with me at it. It's, it's the third to final parable that Jesus tells in Matthew. In the last three parables he tells in Matthew 25 before he goes to the cross in Matthew 26. And in Matthew 25, he tells three parables about his return. And here's the first one. He says this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. And that was ten bridesmaids. All the bridesmaids were unmarried women. So they're called virgins here. Um, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. This is the first season of The Bachelor right here, right right in your Bible. Okay? It's The Bachelor meets Survivor. Okay? They've got their lamps and everything. Okay? Um, And it says this, verse 2, five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. That's the only difference between the wise and the foolish. Some were prepared and some were not. Everything else is going to be the same. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and and those who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, of all the parables, this was Jonathan Edwards' favorite parable. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan, if you don't know who that is, and he was... Um, he wrote that famous thing you probably read in 11th grade English, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, but he, he was a very, one of the greatest minds that, that America ever produced. Both Christians and non-Christians believe that. And he loved this parable. He preached no less than 10 sermons we have on this parable from him. The Puritans love this parable. Here's, and I'll just tell you, it needs very little explanation. The main idea in this whole parable is that when Jesus Christ returns, many people in the church will not be ready to meet him. That's what it means. We're going to talk about the details of it, but when Jesus Christ returns, many people in the church, and what's humbling is it says five out of ten. You don't know, in parables, you don't know how much to press, right? You can't find 
meaning in every number and every letter and every illustration and every image. But it's, it's interesting that it's not one person wasn't ready. It's not two people weren't ready. It's half of the people were not ready. They were in church, but they weren't in Christ. They were converted to church culture, but they were not converted to Christ. And he, and he talks about this. Now, now, to get the full illustration, to fully understand this, you have to understand Jewish weddings. So th this is all the image of a Jewish wedding. I'm going to tell you a little about Jewish weddings just for a minute. It'll help you understand this passage. There were three parts to a Jewish wedding. The first part of the Jewish wedding was the arranged marriage, right? So the idea that you can pick your spouse is about 200 years old. We're kind of seeing if it's going to work out or not. It's very new. It's really, very, really new in, hu in human history to pick your spouse. It's kind of a luxury. Um, in, in many places in the world, and for most of human history, you didn't get to pick your own spouse. Um, parents picked, you know, got together. Usually fathers actually got together and, and, uh, and basically, you know, arranged marriages, right? And every dad who has a daughter still thinks this is a great idea, okay? Um, and if you've ever wondered, what is the position of Two Cities Church? We have put a number under every single person's seat right now. If you, I'm just kidding. Um, um, but so there was an arranged marriage, and really this is actually a picture of the Old Testament. What did God do in the Old Testament? He arranged everything to happen. Well, then there's a second stage of the marriage called the betrothal. And the betrothal was when the bridegroom, the husband-to-be, would go and meet the wife-to-be, and he would pursue her. He would declare his love to her. He would ask her to marry him, and she would say yes. And the way she would say yes is she would drink a large glass of wine. And you go, well, why, why, do you, why is that interesting? Well, you know, <laughs> some are like, these traditions, yeah. Um, and, and the reason, well, it makes sense, because if you ever wonder when Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I drank? Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? He's alluding to this. Drinking the cup was a way to say, I'm going to take the vows. I'm going to be fully in. I'm fully, this is why to this day at a Jewish wedding, they'll still smash a cup. They'll cover it with a cloth, they'll smash a cup. It was the cup that the woman drank out of when she said yes. And now she can't say no. So think about this. So, so she, this is so, this is so amazing. So this is what Jesus does, right? Jesus comes to us. He declares his love, his pursuit. He lives for us. He dies for us. He rises from the dead. And then this is what would happen next. The husband-to-be would say, I need to go away, and I need to get a job, and I need to build a house, and I'm going to come back and get you. And that was the betrothal period. That's what Jesus did. He said, I'm going to go away, I'm going to build a house, John 14, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you. And he would often come back when, you know, because women love to be surprised, right? Kind of, sometimes. Um, um, and so the bridegroom would come back at an hour that she wouldn't know. It could be anywhere from a week, couple weeks to a month to up to a year. And he would often come back at night. And, and here's what's so cool, and you saw this in the story. He would send his best man ahead of him to yell out, the bridegroom's here. Well, if you ever wonder, why does John the Baptist call himself the friend of the bridegroom? That's what he saw himself as. John the Baptist saw himself as Jesus' best man who was announcing his first coming. And he's saying, there's going to be, the, 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 the best man's going to go out and he's going to say, get ready for him. And then they would go into a seven-day wedding feast. And all the dads of daughters say, praise the Lord, there's no seven-day wedding feast anymore. That'd be very expensive. But that's what they did. They did a seven-day wedding feast. And so you have to understand, that's the whole con. It's really beautiful. So now you, can, now you understand the return of Christ. Jesus comes after us. He pursues us. He declares his love for us in his life and death and resurrection. And then he says, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to come back in an hour you don't know. And this whole parable is, are you ready? And I want you to see this. What happens in verse 5 is very, very interesting. It says in verse 5 that everybody got drowsy and everybody fell asleep. Commentators note this is, this is a critique both on the non-Christian but more so on the church itself, the, the real Christian. 
It's saying that even the real Christians will get drowsy. They'll start to not believe. They'll start to fall asleep. What, what does it mean to be asleep? What does it mean to be a drowsy? It means to not live in the real world, right? What happens when you're sleeping? It's like you don't know what's really going on. You're in like a, a dream-like, you're not in real reality. And we were talking about this as a staff. And one of the staff said to me, has there ever been a time in human history where we're more tempted to live in a dream-like world? It's like I could have real relationships in the real world or I could have fake filtered relationships on social media. Right? And it's like, now I don't even know how to talk to people. If I can't send a GIF and an emoji, I don't know how to communicate. I don't know how to have face-to-face -face real relationships with real people. I don't have any personal story or greater narrative that I'm a part of. I'm just excited about the sixth season of Breaking Bad, a fake story. I'm not a part of a real adventure or a real war against a real enemy named Satan. I play video games with fake wars. Right? They're talking about now how Fortnite is now as addicting as crack cocaine to people. It's like this completely fake world. And I'm not totally against video games or anything, but it's like there's a real world. There's a real war. There's a real enemy. There's a real adventure. And what he's saying is that, that, uh, that I believe this is the critique of the church is that we're, we're not living in the real world. It's, part of it is it's hard to stay awake. It's hard to be alert. It's hard to see people as they really are, as lost and as broken, because guess what? That means I have to do something about it. I'm responsible. I have to say something. I have to sacrifice. I have to give. I have to serve. I can't be selfish. So it's this massive critique on the church. And then in verse 6, he, he comes. He wakes up everybody, including the true church. And then verse 7 is very interesting. In verse 7, it says this. Then all those virgins arose. And they trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there's not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. Now, listen, this is not about how the wise virgins were being selfish and wouldn't share. That's not the purpose and point of the parable. The purpose and point of the parable is there are certain things that you cannot delegate to other people to do for you. There are certain things that you cannot buy, that you cannot borrow, that you cannot bargain for, that you have to take care of for yourself. And you know this, right? It's like, you know that you can't delegate your own health to somebody else. It'd be great if we could. If you're like, hey, could you run for me? <laughs> We'd all love to do that. If you could go to the gym for me five days a week and just do a great workout, that'd be awesome. If you could eat this kale for me, you know? <laughs> Whatever it is, it's like, well, that doesn't work that way because we know and Again, we always get things in the physical world that we don't get in the spiritual world. It's like, well, no, nobody can do that preparation for me, right? Who else can be a parent to your kids? No, just you. Yes, other people can watch them, feed them, educate them, take care of them, but no one else can be their parent. Nobody else can set goals for you except for you. Nobody can do personal development except for you. And this whole idea is that nobody can prepare to meet God except you, <laughs> Nobody can believe the gospel for you. Nobody can repent for you. But every once in a while, more in the church culture, you'll talk to someone about Christ. I was one of our elders this week told me, he said, I was having a spiritual conversation with a guy. And as soon as I started to talk to him about Christ, he deflected to his grandmother and his parents. Oh, this is, yeah, my grandmother goes to this church. And my parents do this. It's all about other people's belief, not their individual belief. It's all about what other people have done, not what they need to do. And this whole parable is about getting ready, preparing yourself to meet God. 
I mean, you think about this, it's like, well, every person is going to stand naked and bare before the almighty God. It's happening. God is a part of everybody's future. <laughs> no matter what they believe, God's a part of everybody's future. And so, well, how do you get ready? Well, you can't stand before God by yourself. Like, like I saw the, I don't know if anyone else here saw the series Chernobyl. It's a TV series called Chernobyl. Fantastic. But it's based on what happened when the nuclear reactor broke open. This is, I think it happened in the 80s. And um, there's a couple scenes in that movie that just remind me of, of standing before God. Let me explain. He, basically what would happen is when the reactor first broke open, the Gorbachev's right-hand man is in the helicopter with a head nuclear physicist. Just follow this for a moment. And they're, about, they're flying over to Chernobyl. And Gorbachev's right-hand man says, I need you to fly directly over the nuclear reactor so I can make sure it's been fully exposed. And when he says that, the nuclear physicist goes, we can't fly over that nuclear reactor. You have no idea what will happen to us if we, even if we just, for a second, fly over that nuclear reactor. And, but Gorbachev's right-hand man goes, fly over it. He says this to the, to the helicopter pilot. He goes, fly over it, I'm gonna put a bullet in your head. And then the nuclear physicist says, if you fly over it in about 15 minutes, you're gonna wish there was a bullet in your head. And he begins to explain what happens when a human gets contact with a nuclear reactor. Like there's, there's another scene in the movie where they've, they've got to, they've got to turn, it's too much to explain, but it's important to understand this part. They have to, they have to send five guys in to the bottom of the nuclear reactor, way underneath it, to turn the water off. And they, they suit these guys up. This is all true story. They suit these guys up and they have masks on and they've got all the, the, the most intense coverings that you've ever seen and they walk into the building. And as they enter the building and the door closes, Gorbachev's right-hand man looks at the nuclear physicist and says, what's gonna happen to those men? He goes, they'll be dead in a week. He says, no, no, well, they're wearing the mask and they're wearing the, the and he goes, you can't be that close to a nuclear reactor. Doesn't matter what you're wearing. You can't be that close to a nuclear reactor and survive. They've just delayed the inevitable. They'll live five to seven days instead of dying instantaneously because they're wearing that. And it's like, man, okay, God is so much greater than a nuclear reactor. How do we think that we can stand before God by ourselves based on what we've done? It's like, this is what, when it says we want to stand in the righteousness of Christ, it means that we can't stand before God by ourselves. We have to say, Jesus Christ lived a life for me. He lived the perfect life. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God. He bore the nuclear reactor for me. And I can only stand here because of what Christ has done. That's, that's the gospel. And he's saying that's what it means. We need to be ready to meet God. But then verse 10 tells us terrible news. If you look at verse 10, here's what it says. And while they were going to buy, going to buy the oil, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord. Now that's interesting. They called Jesus Lord. It's so scary what they have in common. They both have lamps. Most people think that means the word of God because that's a common metaphor in scripture. The, the, you know, your word is a lamp to my feet. So they, they both have the word of God. They're both in Christian community, right? There's people who walk with God's people, but they don't walk with God. They both call Jesus Lord. They both go to the same events, it's very, the more you press on it, the scarier it gets. The only difference is the oil, which is the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. It's the Holy Spirit and the grace of God that make the word of God come alive. It's what takes Christian, like when I, you know, I thought I was a Christian for the first 16 years of my life. A nominal Catholic kid thought I was a Christian, and then the Holy Spirit came into my life through the preaching of the gospel, and I realized, wait a second, people aren't just sinful, I'm sinful. Christ didn't just die for people, Christ died for me. 
People don't need to repent. I need to repent. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit makes the gospel personal for you. And it says, they, they, what he goes, afterwards, the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you, which shows that it's about a dynamic personal relationship with Christ. Jesus knows everybody. What he means is, I don't know you in an intimate way. I don't know you in a personal way. I don't know you in a saving way. I don't know you in a real way. It's a reminder that Christianity is a dynamic, vibrant, intimate relationship with Christ. And then he warns us here, watch therefore, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour. Now, it's interesting. There's two main ideas in this parable. The one is, well, you know, the big idea is there's people that aren't ready to meet Christ in the church, and that's scary. And the two sub-ideas under that are, we must be prepared, and many people will regret missing their opportunity. That's, That's the whole parable. And what's interesting is every time they ask people, like people at the end of their life, and they ask the question, what do you regret? And this is good to know, especially because many of you are young. When they ask people, what do you regret? Most people do not mention things they've done. They mention things they've failed to do. When they think about their whole life, like, you know, we've, we've all done some things we really regret. Some of us have done some terrible things, and we can look back and go, I wish I didn't do that. But most people, when they look over their life, they, they regret more what they've failed to do. Or sorry, yeah, what they did not do. You know, I wish I would have asked her out. We were high school friends. Or I wish I would have listened to my dad. I wish I would have got more education. I, I wish I would have bought that house. I wish I would have gone into that career. People have lots of regrets. And so th- this, is, this is a regret of a completely lost opportunity. And, and it's almost hard as Americans for us to believe that something could happen that we couldn't fix. Like, I don't know if you ever get that feeling, like, you, you know, especially I think the younger we are, the more we just think, yeah, if I get sick, there'll be a pill for that, right? Or maybe a non-invasive surgery that's outpatient. Like, there's, right? Like, very rarely do we ever get in a situation where we feel like, this is final, and I'm stuck forever in this. I've seen that. I mean, every once in a while, a terminal illness will do that to somebody. Every once in a while, a severe uh, disability will do that to somebody. Every once in a while, a very chronic illness will do that to somebody. I, I had a friend, and he said the first time it ever happened to him was he, he went to, um, he was planning this trip to South Africa to do mission work, and he, he had planned it for a long time. And he gets to the airport, and he's a very organized person, but somehow he forgot that his passport was not updated. And so he had a three-week trip planned that he could do nothing about. Look, when, when your passport's out of date, it doesn't matter how much you pray about it. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't, you don't, there's nobody that you know. You can't know anybody to get, it's like, this is international travel. They don't mess around with this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, the whole trip's over. Now, now the, the, the illustration falls apart because guess what? He was able to go get his passport renewed. And, but, but the whole idea is that there's going to be people who are going to completely miss out. But this parable is told in the best sense of the word to, to those who still have time, Right? That to, to us, so, so the call at the end of this parable is if, if you're not, if you would say, I've been playing games, I, I don't really know Christ, then the call of this parable is to believe the gospel. Nobody can believe it for you, nobody can repent for you to, to, to do that. Right? Because cause I love what John MacArthur says. It's, it's very intense, but John MacArthur, who, you know, he pastors in California, been pastor for 50 years, he says the second coming is the end of the grace of God. Which is a very intense thing, but he said the, it's the end of grace. That, when, that now is that we live in the season of grace where there's an opportunity to repent, there's an opportunity to believe. When Christ comes, 
This parable's clear, the whole New Testament's clear. It's the end of the grace of God and the decisions have been made. So today's the day to make the decision. For the rest of us, the Bible talks, tells us to hasten the day, to make decisions daily in light of this belief. The way that we give, the way that we serve, the way that we pray, the way that we care about world missions, the way that we're living a pure life, the way that we're hoping ultimately is because of what we believe about Christ. I love what C.S. Lewis, how he ends. C.S. Lewis, in his great book on the last battle in Narnia, he ends with a hopeful picture of the end of, of time and a hopeful picture of the return of Christ. If you're familiar with the series, Aslan represents the Christ figure, and here's how he ends it. He says this, and as Aslan spoke, these are the last words of, the, of um, the book, The Last Battle. He says, as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I can't write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories and we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All of their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Lord, that's our hope. We want to be a hopeful people. Lord, I pray for our church what Martin Luther said. He said, I feel as though Christ died yesterday, rose today, and is coming back tomorrow. Lord, I pray that we would be individual Christians and we would be a church that believes that. And even right now, I just want to give us a chance to respond by saying, Lord, help me to, pre help me to prepare for your second coming by. And whatever we need to do, Lord. For some of us, we need to be reconciled to certain people. We need to forgive somebody. We need to get serious about a certain sin in our life. We need to, we need to share Christ with a friend or coworker or family member or neighbor, Lord. Lord, give us the strength to have a vision of the future that affects how we live in the present, Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.